0: You can find yourself in a situation where most people are going to give up hope on you, give up their faith in what it is you can and cannot do, but you have to persevere even if it's only for yourself to prove them wrong. Cuz like I said, getting pregnant at 14, everyone, oh she's going to be another statistic, you know, this that and the other thing. And now when I go home, um people use my story in the classroom, like cuz you know, teenage pregnancy is a lot more common now, but I, yeah, something that could have let me get down actually motivated me to go further ahead.
1: All right, welcome to The Path Distilled. I'm Kevin Harris with my host, uh, co-host Lauren Tashman.
2: Hi everybody, welcome to the show today.
1: Our guest today is Dr. Emily Pika. Uh, she's in the Department of Psychological Science and Counseling. Um, she's an Assistant Professor of Psychological Science at Austin Peay State University. She has 29 publications. She's co-edited two books and she's the author of Familiarity and Conviction in the Criminal Justice System. Welcome, Emily.
0: Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. Thanks for joining us
1: today. So can you tell us a little bit about kind of what you do
0: Yes. So, um, as you mentioned, I'm an assistant professor, so I teach undergrad students. Um, I primarily teach forensic psychology and research methods, and I supervise student research. Um, In terms of research, my research focuses on three different paths. I look at juror decision-making, eyewitness research, and most recently, I've been focusing all my attention on wrongful convictions, um, how they are perceived, as well as interviewing exonerees to kind of get an understanding of the experiences they face post exoneration and in hopes to one day help change some legislation.
1: Okay. Wow. So, when and how did you get involved in this type of research?
0: Oh, Overall, I'd say it was my fourth year undergrad psych and law class. Um, that really kind of opened my eyes to wrongful convictions. And then when I got my master's degree at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, I had the pleasure of working with Dr. David Ross and Dr. Amy Warren. And they both focus on um, forensic psychology in different, different regards. And I learned about the cross race effect, which is we're better able to identify members of our own race than members of different races. And I noticed that about half of the eyewitness misidentification cases, um, that led to exonerations were cross-racial identifications. So I tried to figure out if instructions could reduce the cross-race effect. Um, so that was my research side. I also did a year of trial consulting uh, with Dr. David Ross, and that kind of opened my eyes that don't judge a book by its cover. Um, I got to see the defendant and kind of hear for a mock trial and hear his side of the stories. So that kind of opened my eyes as well
1: ask all our guests to send us uh, something that was pivotal in their lives Um, Mm -hmm. and I'm gonna pull up the picture you sent and can you tell us a little bit about this picture and why you sent it
0: yes so when I was 14 I became pregnant um, and I was probably one of the first in my school to get pregnant at such a young age so you know that comes with a lot of stigmatization And it kind of, everybody looking down on me and everybody kind of thinking that I was just going to be another statistic, be a dropout, be a high school dropout, something along those lines. It kind of motivated me to pursue my dreams of A, proving them all wrong and B, getting my PhD in psychology because it's something I've always wanted to do. So this picture is actually taken on July 2nd, 2003. And that's the day my daughter was born. And we have an open love adoption. So she was placed for adoption with a great family. And she's also kind of been my motivation. So it's just, I don't know. I got pregnant at a young age and somehow that motivated me to just, like I said, prove everybody wrong.
1: So you mentioned that at that moment you knew that you might be, uh, that you were interested in uh, pursuing a PhD. Can you kind of take us back to that moment and maybe we'll work from that moment until the most recent story?
0: Yep. So, um, I took a psychology class and I was hooked. Um, I was fascinated that we could kind of like, just to see how the brain works and the inner workings of the mind. And so I took a regular psych course and then I took an AP psych course and I was like, this is what I want to do.
1: And this is around the same time.
0: Yep. My first psychology course was around the same time.
1: Okay. Wow. And so I didn't, I don't think I knew I wanted to pursue a PhD until um, definitely undergrad. Um, So can you take us through your thought process as you were-
2: like, I never wanted to pursue a PhD. My dad was like, you will get that. (laughs) Basically, that's what my mom did as well. We
0: had, I don't remember the name of the class. It was so long ago, but we had a guidance counselor because that's what they were referred to back then. She taught a class in junior high and it had to deal with careers. So we kind of learned at a young age you know, different career types, different paths, what we could do. So um, that's where I learned about it and learned that I would like to definitely go to graduate school because I'm a first generation student. You know, no one in my family ever went that far. And it's funny, you mentioned your dad was like, yeah, you got to do this. That was my mother. Um, If I did not make honor roll every marking period, I was grounded. There was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. So my mom played a part in that as well.
1: So as you moved through your education at that point, was that every year, did that remain your goal? Yep. Yep. Okay. And so as you, um, so your middle school or junior high, um, whichever you guys called it there, and then uh, you're approaching high school, what was the thought process as you progressed?
0: I actually um, still knew I was going to go to college, so I took courses for college credit in high school. Okay. So I got my statistics out of the way, um, and I got, since I took AP psychology, I didn't have to take that as a freshman in college.
1: And did you begin to feel, um, did did others in your cohort or peer group know that you were already thinking of? pursuing a PhD?
0: No, I was probably one of the only ones who wanted to go that far. So I didn't talk about it much. Okay.
2: Yeah. What was it about psychology that really just stood out to you and drew you in?
0: Honestly, it was probably the social psychology chapter because it was just your general introduction to psychology, and it all fascinated me. And the developmental chapter, given that I had been pregnant, seeing the prenatal development, um, I was able to kind of relate to that. So it was just probably the developmental and social, which I actually majored in developmental psych in my undergrad. Okay.
1: And so did this interest waver? Did it fluctuate?
0: Not at all. Well, Uh. not at all with psychology. What I wanted to do in psychology, yes.
1: I'm impressed so far. (laughs) (laughs) So let's, we've reached undergrad. Um, So what's the path looking like at this point?
0: Well, I started out at uh, Bloomsburg University in Pennsylvania. Um, I didn't do too well my first semester. Um, It was my first time ever being away from home. And I just, like I said, I didn't do well. I got C's and D's. Um, Honestly, hardly ever attended classes. The transition was too hard um i did make it to the spring semester and i brought my grades back up but i transferred to another school closer to home so that i could stay at home and just commute and that was mansfield university of pennsylvania and honestly i think that was the best decision i could have made it's a small uh, tight-knit department all the professors knew you um, and that's where i met my mentor dr carrie verno and to this day, I still talk to her and thank her because if it wasn't for her, I probably would have struggled even so at Mansfield.
2: What was that like at that first university? You know, Because you had just talked about how in, you know, in high school and your mom and the impact of kind of always doing well. And so what was that like for you when you get there and you're not?
0: <laughs> uh, it was a struggle, to be honest with you. I think the more I did poorly, the less I wanted to improve. As weird mm-hmm. as that sounds, I didn't yeah. have that motivation.
1: And what did you attribute that to, not wanting to?
3: I had a lot going on in life at that time. And then being away from home
0: on top of that and not having my mom in my head basically saying, you got to do this. It was my first time I could make my own decisions. And fortunately, I made
3: poor ones.
1: Were you questioning your capabilities at that point?
3: Yes. Yes, I was.
1: And what did that do to your mindset?
0: That, I think, is when I first started experiencing um, anxiety and imposter syndrome, because all throughout high school, I was like, I can do this. I, you know, I'm making honor roll every semester. I'm smart enough for college. I get there and I do poorly. It
1: it was a struggle. So go ahead, Laura.
2: Did you, were you still connected to that motivation for psychology or did you lose the connection to that as well?
0: Nope, still motivated for psychology.
2: Mm -hmm. So it was really just more about you at that time. Like, can I do this, but still wanting to in some way. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So did you kind of feel yourself giving up on the goal at that point?
0: Almost. Yeah. Um, had I not transferred to Mansfield,
3: I probably would have.
1: And so you're at Mansfield and you met this wonderful mentor. What -hmm. happens next?
0: My life changed. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I learned about research. I took my first research methods class and was able to go out and collect research. Um, we actually, I still remember, we it was a group of us, we examined um, pseudoscience beliefs among college students. And we had to present that at the end of our second semester research methods. And that's when I first dabbled in research. Um, the years went on and I actually completed two independent studies. So I collected two Two completely different types of studies one was on friendships over the lifespan one was on racial biases and police officers But I collected all of it on my own and we had to present it as our senior seminar presentations and That that was a pivotal moment as well because I had to also present a senior seminar paper and I chose the topic of GREs and their lack of predictive utility And unbeknownst to me, one of the faculty members was very passionate about the GRE. um, And that was the first time he was asking very rapid fire questions. And that was the first time that I had felt personally attacked in an oral presentation and I left the room crying. So I would say that was another pivotal moment where I was like, is this really for me? Can I do this or am I lying to myself?
1: It's interesting you say that because one of the criticisms I faced early on is um, one of the first comments from a dear mentor of mine was you don't take constructive criticism very well. And so I think those of us who, um, and I'm also a first-generation college student, so I think those of us that might have um, those self-doubts or imposter syndrome that creeps up because we've always been um, in a somewhat comfortable comfortable environment, um, I think that's something we have to deal with. Uh, how did you overcome that uh, feeling?
0: Huh. Well, the very next week I had to give another presentation in front of the same <laughs> audience. So Back I was, on the
2: horse. Yeah. <laughs>
0: so I was kind of forced. That one went very well and I felt a lot better about it.
2: What happened between those two?
0: A lot of crying. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of reassur- reassurance from my cohort. Um, they because I didn't want to do it. Um, I was terrified. I got reassurance from my cohort, my family, you know, my supervisor, she reassured me that everything was going to be fine. And it was, I was, I was, I can never say this word catastrophizing in my head that the same thing was going to happen. Sure. Um,
2: and it had happened. So it's fair to say it could <laughs> happen again. <laughs> when you look back at that, pivotal experience now, do you look at it back at it with the sense of, you know, wishing it had never happened or grateful or some other kind of lens on it?
0: You know, I'm grateful because I present at um, conferences now where there are experts in the room. So I've prepared myself now to read over and become so familiar with the literature before I give a presentation so that if I do get questions like that, I'm more prepared.
1: That's uh, That same mentor said it's like um, carrying a, or walking into a room of uh, helium balloons with a sword when you go to those types of events. So he was the one that was asked, uh, trying to get me to, um, I guess, thicken my skin and made the comment about the constructive criticism. Um, so are you doing things differently from your peers at this point? Yes. And so could you talk a little bit about what, how those differed?
2: I mean, you have a lot of publications. So that question is kind of like, of course she is. We're still, uh,
1: we're still uh, in high uh, undergrad right now.
2: Oh, I know. I'm just assuming.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha.
0: Um, I was still taking school a little bit more seriously. Um, I was never a partier. I know college is. you know, you think college is a time for partying, going to frat parties and stuff. That, that wasn't me. Um, I worked as a waitress and also going to school full-time so i was working i had my own car i had my own car payment so i was more focused on you know improving my life and being able to make my bills instead of partying all the time which sometimes i regret i mean i missed out on that experience but
1: i was just thinking uh i remember when i was trying to keep my grades up in undergrad that people would like be in the room studying and someone would invite me somewhere And I always kept the mentality that this isn't just like this 30 minutes of time. If I make a C or a D or whatever the case may be, I might not uh, be able to accomplish my goals. Did you have any
0: similar? I was the type of student where if I got below an A, I was very upset with myself. Yeah, yeah, that definitely played a role. (laughs)
2: Why, why was that the case? Is that an identity that you wanted to have?
0: I don't necessarily think I wanted to have it. I think it was instilled in me by my mother from high school,
1: and was that in part to uh, buffer yourself against the imposter syndrome yeah. that you said you were feeling? Yeah, you had to prove at least to yourself.
2: yes, definitely.
1: okay so can go I
2: go ahead. back for one second and ask what it was about research that you found enjoyable, fascinating. I guess I'm somewhat asking cuz most of the time you hear people are like research no, especially <laughs> students, right? <laughs> I just- it's the
0: topic. So for example, in undergrad, when I did racial biases in police officers, it's you learn about, you know, the stop and frisk programs that they have. Mm-hmm. And it's like, does that happen in our town? Cause I'm from, you know, a town of 3000 and mm-hmm. it's like, does this happen? Will it happen? You know, what are they going to do? So I think it's both the, top, both the topic as well as the question that really interests me. And then being able to look at the data to determine whether, oh, yes, my hypothesis was supported. Or, you know, on the flip side, no, it wasn't.
2: So it sounds like it's really bred out of curiosity. Yes.
1: So any other noteworthy things that occurred between undergrad and grad that stand out? I don't think so okay so now um so I think the uh, grad grad school uh, phase is where we are now so can you talk a little bit about that experience
0: yes um I was super ambitious out of undergrad I applied to PhD programs thinking I could do it um I got I got rejected from all of them And then um, I actually was searching for master's programs and I found the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga and they have a rolling admissions. So I applied there and um, I did horrible on my GREs, hence why I chose my senior seminar topic on the predictive utility. So um, I get an email from Dr. Amy Warren, who was the uh, coordinator at UTC and she was concerned about my GREs. She was also concerned about my C in statistics that I got my first semester at Bloomsburg when I wasn't doing well. So I was able to kind of converse with her about that and she took a chance with me. Um, She wanted me to allay her concerns, which I must have done a good job at doing because she did admit me to the program. So I got accepted there and I got accepted at a school in Boca Raton, Florida. Mm -hmm. and as much as I would have loved to live in Florida, I knew that UTC was the right choice, and it ended up
3: being the best choice.
1: And so can you tell us a little bit about how things went whenever you got to uh, UT Chattanooga?
0: Yeah, it was horrible, um, (laughs) (laughs) I didn't get as much feedback on my writing as I wish I would have in undergrad because I was always getting A's on my paper. Well, my first semester at UTC, I took a multicultural um, psychology class and I got my first C on a paper. So that was eye-opening that, you know, this is a whole different world. Um, So that kind of opened my eyes. I got to put more effort in. And other than that, um, I knew I wanted to teach at that point. So I took the teaching of psychology course and Amy Warren taught it. And she and I, to this day, still laugh about it. We had to teach a course and record ourselves. And I volunteered to teach one of Amy's classes. It was an hour and a half class. I taught the whole class in 15 minutes. And um, so that was like, "Mm, maybe this isn't for me, but then I got to teach introduction to psychology the next year and I was like okay this is for me that that was just nerves but um I learned a lot about myself I learned about my weaknesses and how to improve and um, both Amy and David were great mentors that I could talk about my problems to
3: and they would help me
1: Can you elaborate on those the weaknesses and how you improve them
0: Yes so the teaching weakness um I just volunteered to teach an introduction to psychology course. I figured that's the only way I'm going to do it. And I did teach pretty fast, you know, about the first half of the semester, I was letting them out early every single class. Um, Then I got more comfortable in my own skin and started, you know, we would actually make class time. Um, My writing, I would ask Amy when she would look over my drafts to be as critical as possible so that I could improve my writing. And um David, he taught me more about the research aspect, and anytime I had questions, I would go to him. He would just, you know, give me the articles, show me how to read them. He signed me up as a student editor, or student reviewer, excuse me, for Law and Human Behavior, which is one of the top journals in our field, so he helped me with that. Um, I just sought out every opportunity to improve upon myself once I found out what my weaknesses
1: were. Did you find your writing as you're writing the voice of your mentor standing on your shoulder? Yes, I know that happened to me. (laughs) So, for the listeners, uh, it would be uh, most of the training that comes with PhD writing will be um, what will the reviewer say or how can you defend that? And so, every time I wrote a sentence, I was asking myself that same question, Um, and over time, that just improves writing. Uh, Lauren, it looked like you had something to do you have something to ask
2: oh i was just thinking about my own experiences with feedback in yeah. grad school yeah. Yeah.
3: <laughs>
1: still in first your head, time right?
2: you're smacked in the face right i'm like yeah. thinking about all of my friends that i still talk to that were just like remember those all the red and now we used to crawl each other and cry <laughs> <laughs> no.
1: and uh, my two of my mentors happened to be british so Um, Some of my voices have British accents. (laughs) I won't repeat them or mimic them. Just uh, I don't want to offend anybody, but um, it ends with mate every time I hear a question.
3: Um,
1: Yeah. And so did you find yourself improving through this process?
2: Yep. Did you find as you were, you know, because what I'm thinking of a couple of things in my head, but (laughs) one that's kind of standing out is that it sounds like some of the early kind of ups and downs and, and criticisms and things that you got or pivot points allowed you to open up to, you know, getting feedback and, and almost to kind of take more agency over getting the feedback. Did doing that change how you uh, experienced the feedback?
0: Yes. Um, once I started to realize that it was actually to help me and not to berate me, I was a lot more open to receiving feedback, no matter if it was good or bad, because I knew in the long run it would
1: benefit me. Did that carry over to other areas in your life or was it just academically?
3: I think it carried over.
1: So um, did you feel you were pretty much on par with your peers at this point?
3: Yes. Yes, I
1: did. And then what happens uh after you teach at or you teach to be exact
0: where do so, i go next
1: yeah so okay. uh, you go on to a phd program correct
0: yes um so i was very fortunate because uh david ross um actually knew her name's joanna Pizzullo. she is a professor up at carleton university in ottawa canada and david was actually her dissertation external chair and joanna like i said she's a renowned child forensic psychologist Uh, she actually created a lineup procedure for children Mm -hmm. so because of david i was able to you know meet joanna on the telephone and i ended up applying there and getting accepted and i was awarded the trillion scholarship since i was an international student and that was forty thousand dollars a year for four years so that paid for my tuition as well as my living expenses so i was fortunate both to have somebody to work with as well as to have everything paid for okay
1: and did you apply at other schools or did you know pretty much you were intending to go there
0: i knew i was intending
3: to go there
1: okay. um wanna step back a second um i still remember the rejection letters that I received, um, do those still sting when you think about them?
0: No, not anymore. Okay, good. (laughs) Took some time, but not
3: anymore.
1: (laughs) Mine still hurt. (laughs) Um, So you're, uh, you're now in Canada? Yes. So tell us a little bit about that part of the path.
0: That was very hard. um, Especially once I moved there because I was in a different country um i know a lot of people think you know united states canada it's not too different but it is and i lived in quebec so i lived in a french speaking uh community and i know absolutely no french um i also was unable to bring my dogs with me because pit bulls are banned in ontario the entire province so i was completely alone i didn't even have didn't even have a dog with me so i knew no one But one thing I learned is that you meet your friends in your statistics classes, and that's exactly (laughs) what I did. So once I started opening up and actually making friends, it became a lot better.
1: And at this point, um, has the imposter syndrome faded? Did it linger through master's program?
0: It increased once I got to the PhD program, Um, because I was like, I'm really here, you know, and... You know how it is. You see some students who are doing a little bit more than you and you think you're not doing enough and I think that's where my imposter syndrome came from. You know, I didn't realize it's not it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And I think that was the mentality I had that it was a sprint. And once I realized, you know, I don't need to I don't need to sprint to the finish line, as long as I meet all these milestones along the way, I'll be good.
1: And have, have you published at this point?
0: No. Uh- yes. I lied, um, my, two, um, my two independent studies that I did in undergrad were published in modern psychological studies at this point.
2: Okay. Yes. With okay. the imposter syndrome kind of confidence piece, it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like it's kind of like this, like up and down of like, I'm good. No, maybe I'm not good. I'm good. no, so maybe I'm not good. <laughs> That's exactly it.
1: <laughs> and so were you actively trying to dissuade or push those down? Yes. And so how did you go about that?
0: I just kind of compartmentalized it um, and just didn't deal with it, which is not (laughs) very healthy. Uh, But I just, I put it in the back of my mind and tried not to think about it. And I think that's why it kept popping up as much as it did because I didn't deal with it.
1: And so what is a typical day looking like at this point?
0: Oh, being in the lab and going to classes, so um, Joanna had one of the nicest labs on campus. Um it had you know two eyewitness rooms, a jury deliberation room, two offices with lots of computers in them. So um, we were expected to be in the lab and do our work and go to class. So I was on campus most of the day and then home at night.
1: And you mentioned statistics class. Um, was there a moment? probably midterm or a little after midterm where everyone realized that everyone else was in the same boat.
2: Yes.
0: <laughs> and once we realized that it was so much better because we realized we weren't
3: alone.
1: Yeah. Um, so is there, this is obviously where you started to dig in deeper. Can you remember a point that critical point when that begins to happen or the progress that that goes about?
3: Yes.
0: Emerging. Um, Joanna held lab meetings at the beginning of every semester so at these lab meetings she would come up with study ideas and that's when I was like oh wow I get to you know continue this research and she would come up with ideas and we could volunteer for which ones we wanted to do so um, my very first study that I volunteered for looked at the impact of familiarity and eyewitness age on jurors decision-making
1: so what role did um Were you leading that project?
3: Yep, I did everything. I created the materials.
0: Um, um, In Canada, the IRB is referred to ethics. So I created the ethics protocol, submitted it, um, collected all the data. You know, we could run up to 12 participants at a time in the jury room. So yeah, she let us be lead on everything and she just gave us guidance along the way.
1: And was it the feedback that drew you along as far as your skill set at this point? Yes.
2: Yes. How are you feeling at this point about the path that you were on? Pretty good.
0: I knew that I was, I had made the right choice and that this was going to
3: be a good thing.
1: And were you, what was your um, work ethic like at this point? Were you more or less about the same as your cohort's?
3: Probably
0: more. I still had that mentality where I couldn't go out. (laughs) I had to stay and keep doing work. (laughs)
1: Sure. Yeah. And how did that make you feel?
0: I feel like I missed out on a lot of things. And it was my own doing since I just kept saying no, so I could continue to work on work. Um, So it was both, you know, oh, I'm getting work done. But at the same time, I'm missing out on these, you know, friendships and relationships I could make.
1: And do you look back on that with regret or do you feel like your sacrifice was worth it? Okay,
0: I do. Yeah. What um, do you regret about it? I guess just making memories instead of looking at it as, you know, being away from family, being away from, you know, friends and stuff. I could have looked at it as, oh, this is a brand new experience in a different country that I could take advantage of. And I just didn't.
1: I'm going to ask you to... Uh,
2: sorry, can I oh, ask one more thing? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Did you uh do you feel like that would have had an impact on you or changed your course? I don't think it
0: would have changed my course, but it probably would have made living there a little easier. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I was going to ask you to put a barter value on it would uh, how many of your publications would you have traded?
0: <laughs> no. I refuse to answer that. Yeah, so. So I wouldn't have traded any of them because each each brought their own experience with them.
1: Yeah, so um, I think that's the first time I've seen you thrown a little off. I didn't, uh, <laughs> <laughs> didn't mean to throw you off there. Um, and so as you're progressing, uh, were you there four years?
0: I was in school four years. I was there five, my fifth year I taught.
1: Okay, so kind of take us through any progression or way of thinking how that might have changed over that first year to the the fourth uh, I actually
0: my my skills and abilities to think like a researcher greatly improved um Joanna gave amazing criticism she when I Her criticism, um, constructive criticism, excuse me, is now how I do constructive criticism. I found it to be very helpful and, um, I would meet with her once a week. So we were always talking about how to improve, you know, what studies can we do? Um, she would always, if I got a rejection from a journal, she always was like, it'll find a home. We will, she's her famous words, this article will find a home. So, um, yeah, my skills to think like a researcher improved. I volunteered to take three different types of teaching certificate courses so that when I did teach, I had as much knowledge as possible. Um, So I graduated and then I taught for a year and I taught two classes my first year. I taught two first year seminars, which are full year courses. One was specific to wrongful convictions and that was the first of its kind at Carleton. And the other one was psychology and criminal justice.
2: Were you feeling better about your teaching skills at this point? No. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um,
0: Because it had been so long since I taught, because as an international student, there were restrictions on teaching. So um, at the beginning, I was a little nervous, you know, back to not meeting class time and everything, but I I adapted a lot quicker than I did when I was at UTC.
3: So it came back quicker.
1: Um, so as we're progressing, um, you said the, you've adopted her, um, version of constructive criticism. Um, is there a way that you can describe that or is it difficult to put to words?
0: I think it's difficult to put into words. Um, I'll just be reading assignments and I feel like a little Joanna voice in my head and I just make a comment. It, I don't know how else to explain it.
2: From the way you described it, it sounds like she was always trying to build you up and get you focused on kind of moving forward. Yes. Which sounds like it was very empowering.
0: Yes, definitely. Um, Yeah, she, that's the great word, empowering.
1: (laughs) And the philosophy that our lab took uh, during my graduate training was if it can't make it out of this room, it doesn't belong to be out there. Uh, is that kind of the approach that?
3: Yeah, more or less.
1: So yeah. if you must defend it within us, with us criticizing it, and then then it can go to a reviewer. And then if it makes it past the reviewers, then it's worthy for prime time.
2: Yeah. So was, because this is like, you know, the perennial question everybody has. I work with a lot of leaders, right? And they're always asking like, how do I do this better? Well, how do people do this? You know, um, it's, is if is it accurate to say that instead of trying to point out what wasn't good or what was wrong or all that it was more like how can we make it better yes and i
0: think that's what make it easier made it easier to take
1: so it sounds like uh, we're ready for your post grad career um so you've you're now employed yes um How was your path? Wait,
2: how did did the employment happen? (laughs) You're skipping a part of the story.
1: (laughs) So take us Um, from uh, the next step as Lauren graciously noted. So
0: um, tenure track jobs are almost near impossible to find. (laughs) So, um, and forensic psychology ones are even harder. So I applied, um, geez, I was probably applying to 10 positions a month. I just kept going and going and, I did get a couple phone interviews, um, and then they didn't go so well. So those rejections were a little harder to take. Um, and then in oh, what was it? The beginning of 2017, I got two on-campus interviews, and they were they were in the same week. So it was it was tiring. Um, one was for a visiting assistant professor at a school in Pennsylvania, and the other one obviously was Austin Peay. So. I did the visiting assistant professor campus interview first, and then the next day flew to Tennessee for the other one. And that one was probably more nerve wracking because it was the one I really wanted. And of course, anything that could go wrong went wrong. (laughs) All of my flights were delayed. Um, So I don't think I got in until like eight o'clock at night. And then we had the dinner, obviously didn't get any sleep that night and then woke up and The campus interview, it was great. Everyone was just so welcoming, and that kind of solidified my belief that that's what I wanted to do. But then there were more flight delays on the way back, and I was like, "These are bad omens." I was like, "I'm not going to get it." So it was great when the search committee chair. So it was great when he called and was like,
3: "You know, you got it."
0: You
1: have uh, a few things in the pipeline as far as publications at this point, Mm -hmm. and then so you're arriving at your tenure track job. what were days looking like for you at that point, as far as research and uh, course teaching?
0: Still actively working on research. Um, I do my writing best when I'm at home. So for the majority of the evenings I was writing uh, during the day, kind of getting used to Austin P. And um, I was teaching three courses. So, cause we got that course released for our first year. And um, just kind of adapting to the culture and the students kind of getting a feel for what the students are like. And it was actually my first time teaching research methods. So, um, I actually enjoyed it, which was not what I was expecting. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was good. And I always knew I could ask for help if I needed it. So that was comforting.
1: And do you have a particular strategy to, cause you're obviously uh, very productive particularly with that type of teaching load. Um, do you have a strategy for how you approach research at this point?
0: I make to-do lists and I give them deadlines. So I have like, even now I have five separate to-do lists for different things. And each has a deadline that I want them done by. And I try to stick to that as much as possible.
3: And this would how be did your... you?
2: Sorry, how did you stumble on that strategy?
0: Uh, my PhD. I just had to learn time management and what to prioritize. And ever since that's, what's been working for me.
1: And I just, I'm assuming this is uh groups of, a uh, team of student researchers mm-hmm. that you're providing the list to.
0: Oh yeah. They know that they're going to get everything they can when it comes to me. I every, lay everything out. <laughs>
1: yeah. And so uh, what about writing? When do you still do a lot of writing?
0: Yes, because I still, I I still have a lot of things going on. Um, So I try to, I'm not going to lie with this COVID-19 and working from home stuff, my uh, motivation for writing has kind of diminished, but I actually have it on my to-do list for today to set up a schedule so that um, each day of the week I can devote to something specific. So um, since it's nicer out, I find myself outside writing better outside.
1: And I won't say how old I think you are, but um, you have roughly at least 29 publications that were published in journals, not counting all your presentations. Um, so I'm assuming that's relatively somewhere in the ballpark of your age. Um, how are you able to How accomplish- have you done it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
3: oh,
0: I- this is gonna sound horrible. But I put my, I put my career first. Um, So that always comes before everything else. I make sure, like I said, I meet those deadlines. I make sure that I'm giving adequate time to my research and to what needs to be done before I go out and have fun. So career research, it just comes first for me. And that's, I think, again, instilled from my mom at a very young age. Um, I blame her for all my anxieties and um she knows it so I can say that um, (laughs) yeah I just put that first and I it's I've been getting better at making the balance a little bit more equal but
1: and so do you set a goal to publish x number a year or does it just whatever's on your plate
0: whatever's on my plate and I usually have a lot on my plate at once so
1: and so I know a a problem with a lot of researchers is they'll get it to the point where they can write it up but then it kind of or they may not write it up, but if they do write it up, they get one rejection um, or they just end up not submitting it. Um, Do you make a conscious effort not to let anything sit if it's ready? Yes. But that's crucial.
2: What, um, earlier on in your story, you used the words, I had to, or I have to, is that still kind of the, the, the frame of mind, the mindset? It is. And I can't get out of that mindset, (laughs) you know, as hard as I try. So, yeah. Does that, is that coming from that, that motivation or, you know, kind of push you got from your mom or a different place?
0: I think it's still my mom. Um, My mom still has high expectations for me. And um, that's very evident when I talk to her about certain things. So yeah, my mom's always in the back of my head.
1: You mentioned earlier that when you, felt like some of your peers in the master's program was doing way more than you. How do you feel? How does your productivity match up at this point among your peers? And not just uh, locally, um, just as far as a researcher in the field of psychology do you, or psychological science, do you still feel that you're doing less?
0: No, I, I feel like I'm on par with most of them, but obviously there's some that are still doing more at like R1 or our one institutions, excuse me, but I'm comfortable with where I'm at.
1: Okay, that was my next question. Are you satisfied?
0: <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> Do you intend to okay. keep this pace?
0: As long as I can. Yeah.
2: yeah. If you fast forward to the future, when you are getting ready to retire from your career and you look back, what will you think about this time period now? That is a great question. <laughs> sorry I put you on the spot <laughs> You <did. laughs> um
0: I think I'd look back at it with pride only because I've had a lot of students um you know for I teach research experience and the students are helping me with my research but I'm also able to help them and I think that's what makes it all worth it even if it does slow my research down a little bit um Uh, that can go on hold because I think bettering the students, especially those who want to go into graduate school, that comes first.
1: Years ago,
2: there was, sorry, Kevin, I keep jumping in on you. (laughs) Years ago, uh, Simon Sinek kind of, you know, uh, got very popular very quickly because of his whole start with why, right? That we kind of have to really get clarity on our why. So is that your why that's driving you? It might be, yeah. Um, I
0: think my experiences as an undergrad are shaping how I approach my students and mm. I just, I just want to see them succeed. I mean, I have students who I've never had before emailing me about certain topics because they need help with it. And I, I feel like that. Yeah, that's my why.
1: I was having a particularly, uh, trying week a couple of years ago and was kind of in the bad mental space um and I had a letter in an envelope in my uh, mailbox on campus and it was uh, a letter from a student thanking me for basically doing what you're talking about and it was the spark I needed uh, at the time that uh, they are now uh, gainfully employed but at the time we're looking at a grad program and I alluded to it was me who helped pave that way and help them get through it so I the feeling is uh, very, very uh, hard to match. Um,
0: yeah, and I feel as though those emails or those letters come at the right time when you need that reassurance, you're on the right track.
1: What do you find easy and what do you find challenging about what you do?
0: What do I find easy? I love my job. That makes it easy. Um, I love what I do. Challenging. There's not enough time in the day. Um, <laughs> um, I wish I could do more, I guess. That's my biggest challenge. I wish I could do more than what I'm doing. Why? Is
2: that an internal thing or because of what you do? I think it's because
0: of what I I wish. So when I say I wish I had more time or could do more, I mean for the students. So. Probably because of what I do, I see where they struggle, and I wish there was more I could do to kind of help them overcome those barriers.
1: And do you see yourself in them yeah. at any point? Yeah. Um, is it not? Go,
0: go ahead. ahead. I was going to say, especially in my research methods class.
1: And would you? Is it analogous to what you were experiencing in those early days? Yeah. What do you view as keys to your success?
0: I'm going to say my mom, since I feel like I've bashed her throughout this whole thing. (laughs) Uh, My mom, my grandmother, uh, time management, and just my motivation. You know, I faced a lot in my life that would probably set a lot of people backwards or would probably, you know, make people think, oh, I should take time off. But I just persevered and pushed through it because of my determination.
1: Did the work? Give you
2: strength yes you talked about the the motivation and drive for the teaching part what about for the research you do i mean you've chosen topics that not that not that i'm bashing anybody's research out there and about to say <laughs> that it's not meaningful but you've chosen some really meaningful research to get involved in
0: uh so what keeps me going with that is their stories um because i've been interviewing exonerees and in december I interviewed one guy and, um, he, he's like, he just said, you know, I, I just want something for Christmas. And I, that really resonated with me because he's in a state that does not offer compensation to the wrongfully convicted. And just hearing their stories is what motivates me to keep doing this because it's very hard to implement change in the legal system. Mm-hmm. So I know that going into it, but at the same time, even just getting their stories out there for people to hear, I call that a success.
2: Does that come from your own story and feeling like you you know, had to overcome things? I think so, yeah. I think that might be a little of it.
1: And what have you learned
3: about yourself throughout your journey? Hmm. I don't know. Um, <laughs> That nothing can stop me, as
0: weird as that sounds. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Like I said, I've had a lot of things that would make people pause in life, and I just kept going.
2: You mentioned earlier that you had a tendency, at least early on, it sounded like, to kind of avoid it, stuff it away a little bit. Has that helped, or has it kind of bit you in the butt at any point? I think it's actually helped. (laughs) (laughs) Um, because now I know not to do that.
0: So um, yeah, taught me life lessons, you know, the hard life lessons, but yeah, I think it taught me a lot about what not to do.
2: I think that's, you know, important given what you were just saying, right? That it sounds like you, you confront those things now, but you, you don't let them kind of create a sense of inertia. You just keep going. Yes. It's not like you're just like, okay, close it all off to anything going on. I'm just going to keep going. It sounds a little bit like it's both now.
3: Yes, definitely.
1: Um, and You alluded to this earlier about the sacrifices Are there that you've made over your career. Are there any sacrifices that you regret? No,
3: because they got me where I am today.
1: And do you feel that you've had to change or evolve at any point to continue to to be successful?
3: No, I've always stayed true to who I am. Um, If something wasn't working, I'd adapt a little bit, but I don't think I've changed much. Just adapted a little. Uh, Where where
2: are you at? Sorry. (laughs) Where are you at? with the imposter syndrome piece at this point?
0: Oh, it's still there. It pops up from time to time. Um, my first semester at Austin P I had a student, uh, drop my research methods class. So I took that personally for some reason and Mm -hmm. that imposter syndrome creeped right back up.
2: One of the things that we talk about, um, kind of in, in mindset, you know, training and mental coaching is this idea of, of confidence and, uh, the sources that we use to get a sense of our confidence. What do you think you use as a way of trying to get a gauge on you know, your belief in yourself?
3: That's another good question. Unfortunately, it's external, it's not internal. Um,
0: I twice a semester ask students for feedback anonymously and I only focus on the good aspects of it because if I'm at least reaching one student and doing something right for them that's good enough for me
1: what advice would you give an aspiring uh, I guess student or professional that's wanting to do what you do don't give up
0: Um, life's gonna try you you are going to feel as though you are being set back but don't ever give up if this is something you really want to do Ask for help. Ask for clarification. You know, seek out all these opportunities, and just don't give up.
1: Why do you think it's so difficult? Um, So, I've actually taken uh, feedback where the the comments are all over the page. We marked through words for manuscripts and Mm -hmm. taking them into classes, and uh, just to show them that um, it's. I think it's students nowadays have this idea, maybe that any thing that looks like it is saying they need to fix it is negative. And so I use that to show them that even, I'm like, this is just my co-authors' feedback. And it's, they're writing almost as much as I am at this point, as far as what to correct. Um, Some of it's my own corrections. Um, Do you have any advice um, or an insight at least, if not, why it's so difficult to get people to realize that the criticism is okay?
0: We take it personally we take it as an insult to you know our character not as not as something that's going to help the finished product so I think at least for myself and for other people I've talked to we internalize it as you know a fault in ourselves and I think that's something unfortunately the individual has to work on Um, but like you said I um, my very first day of classes I tell my students like look you're gonna open these assignments. You're going to see all these comments for me. I said, don't don't panic. I said, they're to improve your writing. I said, and you might even see a good job or I like this in there. Like, just don't panic. I said, you know, I tell them this is how I was taught and I try and reinforce writing is a skill. You're not going to come out, you know, of a research methods course and be the best writer out there. It's just something you have to continuously work on and that's why the feedback's important.
1: And do they seem to buy into that?
0: They do, because at the end of the semester um, in the teaching evaluations, I always have, you know, thank you for all the feedback, Um,
2: but they do admit they're scared at first. I tend to
0: scare them when I say that Mm -hmm. about the comments, but they appreciate it at the end.
2: I do the same thing when I the one class I have right now where I feel terrible when I'm writing the feedback. I really do, because yeah. it's their first time doing like an, an intake session with a client, they've never done it before, and they're they're awful, right? <laughs> rightfully so, right? Like <laughs> you don't know what you're doing, and I have, to, I have to be the one that points it out to you, so I, yeah. I do the same thing. I'm like, I'm just warning you up front, this is going to be awful. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I've had students in classes um, comment that they didn't want me to see rough drafts and I told them that's exactly when I should see it um, because then we can make changes as we go along. Um,
2: There's one question sorry that's lingering you know you mentioned that first university you went to and there was that just moment of like potential give up Mm -hmm. but your advice was don't give up. Have there been any other points along the story where was there was at least like that that idea or feel that popped into your head?
0: Probably in my PhD. Um, cause it was kind of the same thing. I was in a different country, you know, I couldn't go home often. I was completely alone. Um, but I just kept telling myself, like you've made it this far, you know, you can overcome this. You'll be stronger in the long run. So I had to talk my through, talk myself through that one as well.
2: So it's kind of like having to find that voice in a way, especially at the times where it might not be coming easily. Exactly.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) And I think this kind of dovetails with that. Do you see yourself slowing down at any point soon?
0: No, it's not in me to be, it's not in me to slow down. I'm used to go, go, go. um, And I don't think that's going to change for a while.
2: I'd be remiss if I didn't kind of, throw in and some people might that are listening might like it and might not like it that I'm about to do this but I'd be remiss if I didn't throw in kind of the gender card here and say you know how does it feel to be a woman putting career first
3: I've had some low back Um, gotta be careful how I word this (laughs)
0: I've had some blowback because there are people around me who unfortunately still give in to the gender stereotypes where the woman stays home Mm -hmm. um, and cleans and cooks and everything. And uh, luckily, um, I've been with my fiance for, it'll be 18 years in June now. And he has always 100% supported my career coming first. Um, There's never been that has never been a topic of an argument in 18 years. So um, I'm lucky I have that and he'll stand up for me, but I've definitely had some blowback because of it.
1: Um, And so as you're probably aware, a lot of the research that we've been involved with, Lauren and I is related to what it takes to become a really high performer. And some of that evolves around the classic debate of, nature versus nurture, and of course, the extreme nature view would be, there's no uh, need to do it. This is the extreme view. There's no need to do anything. You have the abilities. Uh, An extreme nurture view would be, you have no uh, natural ability. Everything has to be developed. And of course, there's all the things in the middle. Could you talk a little bit about your thoughts on uh, how much you would attribute what you're able to accomplish what weights, natural ability versus hard work? How would you break that down?
3: That's a tough one. Um, I've always been of the mindset, it's 50-50.
0: Just because a lot of people don't want to admit that they do have it in them. They might, you know, use that as an excuse for why they don't, why they aren't pursuing anything. Um, You know, yeah, I'm going to go with 50/50. My little brother, um, he, he beat me on the SATs, and I get that rubbed in my face all the time. Um, he's very smart, um, but it wasn't within him to pursue his education. Um, a lot of people might blame that on, you know nature or nurture, nurture. Um, but you know, it comes down to the individual. He had, like I said, we had the same childhood growing up. My mom did everything for the, you know, we were, we both could read before we went to kindergarten everything like that. So I really do think it's an even split, but it, it comes down to what the individual decides what to do or not to do.
2: So what do you think the two fifties are made up of? Like, what would you say is the definition of nature versus the definition of nurture? I would say nurture is our, you know, our immediate environment um
0: our family, schooling, stuff like that. Nurture na- nature Why? I making me stumble <laughs> on my words. Um would be obviously who we are. I I'm not gonna say we're born with certain things, um, obviously, but I think it comes just the individual's mindset, you know because it's 'cause it is the individual. Whatever's within them is going to either motivate them to go one way or the other way. And I don't think we can blame that on their environment.
1: And when you felt uncomfortable when you first went to college, and you didn't feel um, like your grades weren't where you wanted them to be, did were you questioning your natural ability yeah. at all at that point? Yeah. And what impact did that have on the way you you approached things?
3: I realized that. Um, you
0: know, high school was a lot different. Um, I was going to have to put in more work, more effort. And that that fell on me, not anyone around me. So I knew that I had to take the initiative myself to better those grades.
1: Was your high school challenging
3: at all? Only because I sought out the challenging courses. So, you know, junior and
0: senior year were challenging because I was taking those college credit courses.
1: That's right. Um, anything that we haven't asked that you feel is important for the listener mm. or to share?
0: I just like the mantra, don't give up. <laughs> um, life's going to throw you curveballs. There's no doubt about it. Um, you can either swing and hit, or if you swing and miss, you swing and miss. Just get back up there and take another swing.
1: And what is the biggest takeaway from your story?
3: Why are you asking these hard questions? (laughs) Um, You can find yourself
0: in a situation where most people are going to give up hope on you, give up their faith in what it is you can and cannot do, but you have to persevere, even if it's only for yourself to prove them wrong. Because like I said, getting pregnant at 14, everyone, oh, she's going to be another statistic, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And now when I go home, um people use my story in the classroom like because you know teenage pregnancy is a lot more common now but I yeah something that could have let me get down actually motivated me to go
2: further ahead so do you feel like you have proved people wrong yes
1: does it still motivate you
2: yes and I
0: I would be lying if I did if I said that I don't like to rub it in their face, but I do.
3: Uh, <laughs> so
0: yeah, it definitely still motivates me.
1: That uh, that motivation can be uh, uh undervalued, uh, just wanting to prove somebody wrong right.
2: it, it
1: can lead to a lot of accomplishments, right?
2: Yes. <laughs> AKA twenty-nine or so publications.
1: Uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, Dr. Emily Pika, thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Thank you for having me. Thanks, Emily. It was so great to hear your story. Thank you.
1: The Path Distilled is hosted by Kevin Harris and Lauren Tashman, created and produced by Kevin Harris. The content is copyrighted by The Path Distilled, All Right Preserved.